episode 80 it's it, this is the 80th episode probably for the past dozen episodes i've come on here and said the words the pandy is still raging and i hope one day to come on here and say the pandy is over but i don't think the pandy is going to ever end i was saying all the way back in february on this show i'm pretty sure i said it as a joke that we need to put covid in the drinking water because that's the only way we're gonna get get it over and done with. Get ready for it now. Suit up. Get ready. All right. I don't draw yourself a cold bath to handle your fever. I don't know, but we're all getting it. And this was a joke I made all the way back in February, March. And of course, that's not what I really thought. You know, I figured we would be able to handle the shit. We would do the stuff. We'd wear the masks. Everything would be great. I'd wash my hands way more often than I normally did. I have bad hand washing habits, and it's a fact. All right, and it's a fact. And I didn't realize I had bad hand washing habits until. The pandy started, and I realized that I would do so many things in my day and never wash my hands once. And that's probably why I get 77 common colds a year. Now, I think we're at a point where we might actually have to put it in the drinking water. I'm not sure that there is a way out from here. Now, anyway, welcome to the episode. Episode 80, The State of the Universe, featuring the great Dr. Jehan Kartaltepe. Jehan is... The director for the Laboratory for Multi-Wavelength Astrophysics, LAMA. Amazing acronym. All right. Sometimes I talk shit on the acronyms in, in astrophysics and in science in general. They're too long. They're bulky. They're annoying. That's a good one. LAMA? You kidding me? LAMA? Now, I'm kind of biased because I also am a member of it, but that's not the point. That's not, let's pretend I'm not biased, okay? That's what we do in this aid, this day and age. We say shit that's biased, and then we pretend we're not. I mean, look around you. Everyone's doing it. Now, in addition to being the director for LAMA at, at the Rochester Institute of Technology, she's also a professor of astronomy and physics there, and she is an expert in all things galaxy formation and evolution. She is interested in answering how we go from a messy soup at the beginning of the universe to the clean, well, maybe she wouldn't use the word clean, but the clean, beautiful, serene universe we look in today. If there's any astrophysicists listening to this, you know that the universe is anything but clean and serene, but you get the point. The point is, you look around you, and you see some fundamental structure. Galaxies look certain ways, um, the universe seems to have evolved in a certain way to give us all of these products. Jehan tries to answer that question, how did it actually happen? All right, she does that by taking part in several large collaborations that aim to do galaxy surveys. We talk at length about what those things are, how they're done, etc. But in essence, galaxy surveys do exactly what you would think they would do. They survey galaxies. And in fact, they survey hundreds of thousands of them. So we talk about all of that. What do you learn from 100,000 galaxies? And how do you not lose your mind by thinking about that? Please support the show on patreon okay thank you to all the patrons out there supporting the show i've lowered the lowest price down to a dollar and you can pay whatever you want so if you want to give more than a dollar you know give more than a dollar you when you sign up you have that option if you just want to give a dollar give a dollar and seriously like the patreon the paypal all of those sources of support for the show have grown immensely over the past few months um, at a time when I'm not even putting out episodes at the rate that I normally would. I don't know. But regardless, many of you who are patrons know I reach out to you. We communicate. You tell me what you want to see on the show, that sort of thing. And also, I send you stuff. So if you want to get books, if you want to get you know all sorts of merch, whatever, become a patron and you will have the chance to get some of that stuff given to you too. Uh, we do random sort of giveaways to the patrons and you have a chance to connect with moi. Now, if you wanted to just send me an email, would I respond? Yes. Does that, is that free? Yes. Could you do that as a workaround to becoming a patron? Yes. But should you still become a patron because it is the respectable thing to do? Yes. Should you feel guilty for getting this amazing product for free? On Apple Podcasts? Yes. So how might you pay me back? If you are, say, getting this for free on Apple Podcasts, how might you say, thank you, Brendan. I appreciate you sacrificing your time and effort in giving me great science outreach with Dr. Jayhan Kartaltepe, one of the top 60 or 70 names in the world, ever, forever, past, present, future. One of the best names. How might you pay me back? Well, you could do that by pulling out your iPhone right now, I don't care if it's an iPhone 12, 11, 10, 6, 5, 4. I don't care if it's an iPod Touch. I do not care if it's an iPod Nano. Do you remember those? Pull it out, open up Apple Podcasts, 
and click the five star button. This is a grade A podcast. If you become a patron, you will be a grade A listener. All right. You don't, it's simple. This is a grade A show. Leave a review. Say it's a grade A show. I, I make it easy for you. Literally click the five star button and write grade A. You don't have to think, all right? I'm not asking you to do wine tasting here. I don't need you to tell me what the undertones are. Just write grade A. It's very simple. You are, first off, I have to say, you have one of the coolest names in this entire field. All right. I don't know if that's a compliment. <laughs> I don't know if that's just a, a weird comment. I'm not sure, but Jayon Cartaltape, did I say the last name right? Yes, you did. That is such an awesome name. <laughs> Thanks. It is uh, unique, so. Yeah, it's super unique. Where are you originally from? So personally, I'm originally from San Antonio, Texas. Um, But my father is from Turkey, so my name is Turkish. So I'm half Turkish. Okay, I did not know that. So you uh, went through like a an interesting track in sort of getting your education. And this had never occurred to me until for some reason this interview. So I always go into like your your life, your history and try to like you know, jar up some questions that I find interesting to spawn some conversation. And you went to to Colgate University as an undergrad, which is in like rural, I, I don't know, like eastern, northern New York, right? Um, yes, central, you, central New York. Yeah. Then you went to Hawaii, University of Hawaii. Then right. you went to Tucson, Arizona for a postdoc. Right. And now you're in Rochester, New York. So this to me is super cool because You've lived in four different places now that like culturally, geographically, politically, climate, climately, I don't know (laughs) if that's a word, are all so incredibly different. And do you think that that like has made you a better scientist? The fact that you've been subjected to such different, like as different places as you can get by staying in the United States, you've been subjected to all of them. And it's kind of awesome. I think so. I think it's been really helpful to see different parts of the country and meet very different people live in very different places like i've I've really enjoyed it what's your favorite do you think oh hawaii see i would think hawaii would be this the answer right off the top of your head i mean it's a it's a tough choice it's between that and arizona so i I really enjoyed being in arizona it was a good a good balance of of weather and culture, but you still have access to a lot of things. Being in Hawaii, everything feels very remote. Yeah. Do you, is there two day free shipping in Hawaii? I don't know if that's a thing. <laughs> no, it's more like five days. Or oh something. no. It takes longer. <laughs> wow. See, I, these are the things I don't consider. I just think of the beach and, and serenity. I don't think of like tsunami. I don't think of volcano. I don't <laughs> think of these things. Right. Um, but anyway, so you're, you're here with me, Jayon, to talk about galaxies, galaxy clusters. And I think there's no better spot to spawn that conversation than by going through the history of the universe. And, and obviously that would take way too long to go, but I really want to talk about how we go from the beginning of the universe, this sort of messy soup to the galaxies that we see today. And, you know, just sort of cliff notes. And then we'll we'll pause in aspects of that conversation and talk more in depth about how we know the things we know, right? So to, 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 I think it's best to go, I don't know, backwards in time maybe, because everyone knows, you know, we're on the Earth orbiting rather around the sun. Uh, there's eight planets. You can argue about the ninth. We live in the Milky Way galaxy. There's billions of other stars. That galaxy is part of a bigger group of galaxies, right? The Virgo cluster. And how many galaxies are in the Virgo cluster? Do you know that, Jay? Sorry if I'm making you bring up numbers you don't know. It's okay. I actually don't know off the top of my head. It's, okay. it's a hard thing to count. Yeah. I, I, oh, yeah, exactly. It's a super hard thing to count. But I think it's like, I don't know, thousands maybe? Yeah, you know, thousands. Sure. Um, And so you have thousands of galaxies in this in this huge cluster of galaxies. And this is, I think, where most people's knowledge of the expansiveness of space stops, Right. I think that you you look around you in the night sky and you see all these stars and some of them are galaxies and people don't even realize they're, they're galaxies that they're looking at. Um, but you, you're looking around in, in the night sky, you see all these stars and the, the magnitude of just that is kind of mind boggling. I don't think they even take the next leap to see, to say, oh my, this is one galaxy and we are occupying a sea of thousands, millions, if you go further, of other galaxies. Right. I mean, what we 
what we can see is already so mind-bogglingly large that trying to comprehend that there's so much more that we can't see with our own eyes is is really hard to grasp. Right. And you you're you're super interested in how we got to be, right? Right. How we got to this point where we are in a cluster of galaxies and somehow in that cluster of galaxies in what very well could have been a messy process to make it we have such a beautiful spiral galaxy that looks i don't know you take us through it you know obviously not the cosmological big bang particles ah, <laughs> that sort of thing but from you know very big structure where do we begin right well the the very early universe was made up of we'll start at the gas stage right we have atoms everything's gas there's no stars or galaxies yet in the very early universe but it was overall very uniform just sort of a very uniform sea of gas. Uh, but there were very slight overdensities in that sea of gas where you have some particles that were just a little bit closer together than other particles. And due to gravitational forces over time, those little slight overdensities became bigger and bigger and bigger as gravity brought them together. And so the early universe would have had almost no structure to it at all. It looked very smooth. Um, but over time, structure would form out of that naturally, just due to gravitational attraction and these very slight, random overdensities. Um, and through that process, as those you know clumps of matter got bigger and bigger, stars were able to form as enough material uh, got to be closer and closer together uh, to form stars. And so those first stars would have been really weird because the universe was overall made up of almost entirely hydrogen, little amounts of helium, and that's basically it. And so that's a very different mix from what our universe is like today. And so the first stars would have been incredibly massive um, and incredibly luminous, much more, much more so than stars are today. And what would have the, and, and they would have been occupying galaxies, right? Would these galaxies have looked the way the galaxies we see today look? Not at all, right? It's sort of a chicken and the egg problem. What do you have first, a galaxy or a star? <laughs> you know, at, what right. point, at what point do you call something a galaxy if you don't have any stars yet? So it would have, it would have just been overdensities of matter and sort of clumps of stars. And those clumps of stars would have been the first galaxies. So they would have been very tiny and very different from the things we call galaxies today. Okay. Now, you know, sort of fast forwarding through the process even more, how do we begin to form bigger and what happens to the stars and in, 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 and also in these clumps, like how many stars are we talking just to give some magnitude? And obviously, once again, I'm, I'm not like pointing at an object in a telescope and saying, Jayhan, tell me how many stars are in sure. that clump, right? Um, just, you know, sort of ballpark. Sure, but hundreds of stars, maybe thousands of stars, depending on how large of a gas cloud we're talking about. Um, these early stars would have been so massive that they wouldn't have lived for very long. So they would, they would form, they would use up all of their fuel, and they would have a supernova pretty quickly. And so that supernova would create heavy elements and return that back to the, to the soup of gas in the galaxy. And so you'd very quickly go through a couple generations of star formation, um, where new stars form and then enrich the surrounding gas for the next generation of stars to form right and so uh, over time you have these these like sort of uh, a, as you describe it a soup of of stars hundreds maybe of stars the, do these all sort of uh uh coalesce with one another right because in the in the early universe would these things be very close by one another They'd be sort of in clumps, but they'd still be relatively far away from each other. So they wouldn't coalesce together very often or interact with each other. Um, but it's possible that those first clusters would have also formed the first black holes in the universe. And those black holes would collide with each other and form bigger black holes. And that's something that is still really uncertain is how we got those first black holes and how big those first black holes were. Right. And, and that's something we're definitely going to, going to touch on. But when did we start seeing galaxies that are, uh, or, or rather proto galaxies? I'm not sure what, what word we want to use to describe them. I'm sure you have a vernacular to describe them. Um, but these very early galaxies, when did they start 
rivaling the types of galaxies that we see in the universe today? That's a hard question because they've changed so much. <laughs> they've changed right. so much over time. Um, and they changed pretty quickly, you know, in the very early universe, um, really more distant than we've even been able to see so far. So a lot of our, our work there is really theoretical. Uh, they're incredibly different. So already at something like 500 million years after the universe formed. So still a, a very tiny fraction of the overall age of the universe. Um, galaxies kind of established themselves in their general structure in terms of having things that are sort of disky um, and having them be sort of on the path to the types of galaxies we see today, even though they're still very different. I see. So 500 million years after the, the beginning of the universe, um, are you saying that's when you, you, I don't, I don't want to say that's when you start to see galaxies that resemble the ones we see today, but that's when you start to see, um, galaxies grow to the masses that we see today. Am I understanding that right? Not even to the masses. I would say that. Sorry. sorry I know I'm this just, is like, no, that's this, okay. This is, <laughs> it's, it's a hard I'm, scale to have, you know, on, on the, the tip of my head. Um, I would say that's sort of the edge of what we know. Okay, great. And we're, we're, yeah, the goal is to kind of probe and and teach the listeners about that edge, right? right? Because that's that's the interesting stuff. Right. And so, you know, newer telescopes, better facilities, we're always finding things that are that had formed earlier in the universe than we expected. Right? So, right. so so as far back as we're able to see so far, we see galaxies, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to see them. They wouldn't have any light. Uh, they're very different from today's galaxies, and they get more progressively more massive over over time. But they have to be fairly large and fairly bright for us to even be able to detect them. The teeny little piddly things we can't even see at all. Yes, so so you're kind of biased, right, in in your understanding of the the early universe, because um, if I understand it correct, and sort of playing devil's advocate. It's possible that the galaxies we see today, the most massive galaxies we see today, the most massive black holes we see today, could have formed through some other process that maybe does not emit an intense amount of radiation in the early universe. And thus, we could look back and not even see it happening. Yeah, we're only seeing the very tip, right? only seeing the right. very edge. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, let's, let's kind of talk about how we do that. Um, one of the most fascinating aspects of, of your research of galaxy evolution, and you can speak a little bit to this, is that you can sort of look back in time and watch it like a movie. Um, and, and you can expand on this a little bit. And when I say that, I obviously don't mean you can like pick out a galaxy <laughs> and say, Ooh, let's see how, you know, M31 changes over time. Um, but you can look back and you can look at these objects and then you can look at objects closer to Earth and you can look at objects intermediately far away from Earth. And you can see how these things sort of change over time. Uh, can you speak a little bit to that and, and how cool it is? Yeah, I for me, it's one of the most fun parts of studying galaxies. So I like to tell people it's like having a time machine, right? That's basically what a telescope is. is right. We can look back in the, into the past by looking at more and more distant galaxies or similar to studying the history of a tree by looking at its rings or studying the history of the Earth by looking at ice cores. Right, it's the same same kind of idea, uh, by, but studying the history of galaxies. Yeah, but it, it's even more cool though, right? Because in in the case of the tree, um, you, you're learning about what it used to be like in the past by by say looking at its rings or learning how old it is. Um, but in the case of of what you do, uh, you're literally seeing things as they were. That's right. right. Yep, you have an yeah. actual picture of of the past. Right. So when you, when you take a telescope like Hubble or something and you look at these galaxies that, that you're talking about being incredibly far away that you can barely see, um, for, for the listeners, like maybe some of the people who haven't listened to a lot of episodes before and, and cause we talk about this concept all the time, you are literally seeing the light coming from that thing. It took a lot of time to get here. It took a lot of time to travel through space and, and, you know, in the case of a galaxy that's say 500 million years old, it would have taken 13 billion or so years to get to the earth from where it was. So we are seeing that galaxy as it was 13 or so billion years ago. That is fascinating to me and awesome. And no matter how much like I get exposed to it being in this field, it will never stop being awesome. Yep. <laughs> I agree. 
It never awesome. stops. And it's always fun to talk about. <laughs> it's probably right. one of the coolest things to talk about when giving a talk. Does it ever, when, does that ever like confuse you or boggle your mind? Like, does it, when I look at the absurdity of how big the universe is, I get anxiety. Do you get that ever? It's, it's very, I have very existential feelings. <laughs> I don't know if anxiety is the right word, but I certainly question, you know, who I am and what I'm doing and right. where I fit in and why it all matters. Yeah. Um, I, I, well, and I say anxiety, I, I literally mean like I will get a panic attack if I think about the expansiveness of space a little too much because it, I, I, other, everyone gets a different feeling when, when they sort of, you know, think about these things. But I always think like, oh my, I am, I feel like I'm trapped in a forest, you know, and mm-hmm. the forest like has no end in any direction. And, uh, you kind of have to think, and there's nothing you can do. You're in the forest, you know? Uh, right. and maybe you can find peace with the fact that you're in the forest, but at the end of the day, you're in this like insanely expansive forest that goes on in all directions forever, as far as we know. Anyway, enough about the philosophy. Uh, let, let's sort of get back to this. When did you start? thinking, man, I want to study, or woman, that's just my, that's how I talk. <laughs> Please forgive me, listeners. Sometimes you yell at me. Um, when did you start thinking that I really want to study these galaxies or these proto-galaxies at the beginning of the universe? These things are super interesting. Uh, they will eventually grow and be manipulated to be the galaxies we see today. Therefore, I, I, I really want to spend a career on this stuff. I think... Part of what always drew me to astronomy as a whole was thinking about the really far away stuff, the really extreme stuff, the extreme physics. Mm -hmm. So things like galaxies, things like black holes, they always fascinated me. And in part because of the philosophical reasons we were just talking about. So I always thought it was neat, right? And so I did a bunch of different projects as an undergraduate, and I spent a summer at the Space Telescope Science Institute. And of all of my different like summer experiences, that one was my favorite because I got to work on data that was taken with Hubble, got to work on galaxies. And that was sort of my first dip into the kind of research I do now. It was it was pretty different overall. And it was sort of earlier, earlier times in terms of the data that we had. But I was fascinated by it. I thought it was a lot of fun. So now you've made an entire career out of it for yourself. And I mean. That's awesome, right? That's one of the cool things about talking to astronomers and physicists is you, you, all of them pretty much have identified something they really like at a young age. Um, and in some cases, not at a young age. I mean, I've had people on here who didn't know they wanted to be a physicist until after they've gotten like a master's degree in psychology. And then they went back and, and sort of did it again. So it, it doesn't have to be a young age. If there's any 50 year olds out there listening, go get an a astronomy degree if you want. Um, but anyway, you, you've identified this thing you love. And you pursued it and now you're, you're, you're doing it for a living. And it's one of the, the coolest things, um, that you could possibly work on in the field. So let's, uh, let's sort of follow that transition that we talked about earlier of, of talking about the, the history of the universe. We see galaxy clusters today. There's thousands of galaxies in each of them. And they, I would describe them as neat. Maybe you would describe them differently. Or maybe you describe them as very messy and, and complicated, but I would describe them as neat. What are some typical characteristics of the galaxy clusters we see today? What are the things that we look at a galaxy cluster, we say, ah, here's this, this characteristic, here's how we can explain it, and kind of settled science on, on this front? So I would say what's typical of galaxy clusters today is we'd see very strong trends of the types of galaxies that are in clusters versus the types of galaxies that tend to be more isolated. So for example, galaxies and clusters tend to have different shapes. They tend to be more uh, elliptical, ellipsoidal in shape, meaning they have stars that have orbits that are fairly random, as opposed to galaxies like our Milky Way that have a spiral disk shape to them. And galaxies that aren't in clusters, so things that are more isolated, um, tend to be things that have these these spiral disk shapes. Along with that, there is a tendency for galaxies in clusters to have less activity happening. So they're less likely to be forming stars very rapidly. They've, they've basically already formed most of their stars 
in their life. And now they're just sort of settling in and being very passive. Whereas galaxies that are isolated tend to have much higher rates of star formation. So new stars are continuously being born. They have uh, a supply of fresh gas that hasn't turned into stars yet. They tend to have more active black holes, for example. So there's just a lot more action happening in more isolated galaxies today than in galaxies and clusters. I see. And, and how do we sort of explain that discrepancy? So at the center of clusters, you were saying, we find these massive elliptical galaxies, right? And when you say that the orbits are random, can you can you expand on that a little bit? So what is the difference between how a star orbits in one of these things, uh, these elliptical, these massive ellipticals, versus how a star orbits in, say, the Milky Way? So in the Milky Way, we have a very flat disk structure, right? If you look at it from above, you see the clear spiral arms. But if you were to look at our galaxy from the side, it would look very flat with a, with a bulge in the center and a very flat extended, extended disk. And so the stars in our galaxy orbit in around the center of it, um, in that disk. So most of the stars are in that flat range. They don't go up very high above mm-hmm. that disk. Whereas in an elliptical orbit, they still make you know, circles around the center, but they go every which way, right? It's more like a beehive <laughs> where you have lots of stars that are buzzing around rather than something that's more orderly. How do we explain, why is that uh, the case in these giant elliptical galaxies? And why in galaxies like the Milky Way, who is just kind of hanging out in the outskirts of the Virgo cluster, why are we so orderly? So this is where knowing something about the history of galaxies and how they form can give, tell us a lot of information. And so galaxies, when they first form out of gas, tend to fall into these disk structures. And we see these types of disks all over the place in astronomy, right? We see disks, like our solar system is a disk. We see disks form around young stars out of those gas clouds. Um, and so it's just a natural, a natural consequence of rotating clouds of gas that start to collapse that they form a disk structure. And so that's just, that's just base. That's, that's physics that happens when you have gas. Right. So for these giant elliptical galaxies, um, something happened to them at some point in their past. So they may have had a disk early on that got destroyed or disrupted, or they formed from a different process than disk galaxies did. I see. And what is that process? Do we have an idea about what that process could be? Well, <laughs> sorry. So now that's I'm like, okay. Yeah. Early- now I'm, do- I'm doing this thing I do, and I do this to everyone on the show. And it's so funny to see physicists and astronomers deal with this or any scientists that I have on the show is I'm always like, I probe into the aspect of their research that is kind of an open question, and then I make them flip a coin on it, and they all hate it. They're like, why? Why right. do you want me to tell you things, Brendan? Yeah, I understand. <laughs> things that we don't know. It's hard, yeah, right? We like exactly. we like having more certainty. No, early on, there, so there were two general theories, right? So one is that you form disk galaxies, and then those disk galaxies turn into ellipticals, and we could talk more about that process. Mm-hmm. Um, but for ellipticals, uh, people coined a term called monolithic collapse. And that meant that somehow, and you know, somehow was a big question, somehow that initial cloud of gas would collapse into stars and collapse into a galaxy quickly and rapidly enough that you don't have time for that disk to form. Today, we don't think that happened. We don't think monolithic collapse has kind of fallen out of favor. So it, it probably didn't happen. Or if it did happen, it was in very extreme cases. Monolithic collapse sounds like America in 2020. <laughs> like that. When you said monolithic collapse, I, th- I thought we were talking about politics. Um, but <laughs> it's a joke, but it's real. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah. So let's talk more about this process. The, the other, the non-monolithic collapse. Uh, the the process by which you might take some of these disk galaxies uh, and and somehow convert them into elliptical galaxies. Yes, and so that process is through mergers or interactions. So in that process, you have two galaxies that each have a disk, and because of gravity, over time they'll interact with each other and then coalesce into a single system. 
And so that gravitational interaction, right, the gravitational forces between the two galaxies will destroy that order, destroy the orderly motions and destroy the disks and essentially fling about stars in all different mm-hmm. directions. And so when the whole system kind of settles down and relaxes, you end up with something that has the stars that are much more randomized, like an elliptical galaxy. I see. Now, another way to, to trace this, and um, but interestingly enough, I worked on some of this stuff as, a, as an undergrad because I was kind of interested in this, and I came to this conclusion. Uh, I, I was looking at, at something called the M-Sigma relationship. This is a maybe a little too too technical for the, the show, but I, I will just because it's a funny story. And I was finding the, these cool features in the M-Sigma relationship uh, and with no understanding at all, really, of galactic evolution. I was just finding that ellipticals had a different relationship than spiral galaxies and et cetera, et cetera. And so I come to this conclusion that I think uh, all the all the information is matching up. I'm like, all the elliptic. oh, my God, I think ellipticals merge and that or spirals merge, and that's what creates elliptical galaxies. You know, I have all this like sort of qualitative evidence as you mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. And I think I have this groundbreaking idea. And then I realized that this is the accepted reality of everything. Um, so that's, it's, it's cool to find that yourself. <laughs> correct. Oh, it absolutely is cool. But it's also like when you, when you're a sophomore in college in undergrad, you think you're winning a Nobel prize when you solve like a quadratic <laughs> equation, right? Uh, at least I, I was like, Listen, I'm not to gloat, but I think they're going to nominate me for a Nobel, you know? Uh, and, and as you grow older in the field, you realize that, uh, that's not how things go. And so it, it's awesome to find it yourself. I agree with you, but it's also this funny situation where you, when you're naive and, and younger, you think that your work is like way more groundbreaking than it actually is, or at least I do. And, and then you go see all the papers where tons of people have done it before. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Everyone already figured it out. Um, I mean, I could write another paper saying I figured it out. Uh, but unfortunately, everyone has already, you know, got beat me to the punch. Uh, anyhow, so one of the, the cool ways to sort of track this growth is through the by measuring the mass of the black hole in the galaxy. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. Is that another source of evidence that you can look at the mass of a black hole because the mass of the, the central black hole, supermassive black hole in an elliptical galaxy is in general, much larger than that in a spiral galaxy. That's right. Because on average, elliptical galaxies as a whole are much more massive. Right. Exactly. So, so how does that piece of evidence also play into, into this idea that maybe ellipticals are, are the, uh, or spirals rather are the progenitors to ellipticals. Um, and they get that way through the process of merger. I mean, something that's a real mystery about that relationship, the relate, the idea that the mass of the black hole in a galaxy is correlated with the mass of the entire galaxy itself, mm-hmm. right? That, that's kind of a mystery. And it's kind of amazing when you think about it on its face, because the black hole is this teeny tiny thing right in the middle of the galaxy. And the galaxy is huge and it has stars everywhere doing its thing. And so there's no way for the black hole in the center to really know very much about what's going on way in the outskirts, right? It shouldn't, Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't make sense to us that, you know, somehow that black hole has any connection to what's happening out on the larger scales. But that's obviously not the case, right? Somehow the evolution of the galaxy has set things up so that as a galaxy grows in mass way out here, it's also growing in mass at its very center. Right. Now I'm going to get the sentient black hole emails. Right. <laughs> about how black holes are sentient uh, yep. after, after this episode. Every episode uh, like sort of gets me different kinds of emails. And I think the sentient black hole people are going to be the, the people reaching out to me after this. And I, I did oh. say it. I did say that they know somehow. Yes, you did say it. This is going to be clipped and shared on Reddit. Astronomer claims, you know. Black yep. holes are sentient beings that know things. <laughs> um, and maybe that's true. Uh, we cannot rule it out if we're being fair. Uh, so now we, we want to study this process over time. And we talked about how you can sort of look back in time. And so one of the best ways to see whether or not spiral galaxies are the progenitors to ellipticals through, through the process of merger 
One of the best ways that I imagine you would do that is by looking back in time. So can you, is that what you do? And can you talk about sort of how that, how that process works? Do you look for mergers in, in, in telescopes? Um, how do we do this? Yeah, there's a number of different ways to look at this. So, um, one good one is to look at nearby elliptical galaxies where we can see a lot of detail and see a lot of structure and say, can we see any evidence for a merger in its history? And if we take some of the nearby ellipticals and we get better data and we look at them long enough so that we can see really faint structures, you often see surrounding debris out beyond the elliptical galaxy um, that shows evidence of a past interaction. And so that's one method, right? Just looking at nearby things and saying, hey, is there any evidence for, for a merger? Um, similarly, you can look at the, the detailed orbital mechanics of stars near the center, and, and you can also trace out um, the history that way. But we can also look at more distant galaxies and address some of these things on a more statistical basis and say, okay, well, how many mergers would it take over the history of the universe to form the elliptical population that we have. And are those numbers consistent? Right. So, so how would you, how would you come up with that? Like, how do you do the math, so to speak? How is the, uh, what is that saying? How is the bread buttered? What, what is that saying? How is the, uh, how is the cookie made? Yeah, There's some saying. Your bread. I, yeah I, I know which one you mean. <laughs> how God. is the bread buttered? I yeah, guess. let's do how is the bread buttered. <laughs> so, so basically, we want to know how frequently do mergers happen and how has that changed over time? Mm-hmm. And to some degree, it's a counting problem, right? You want to count up how many things are undergoing a merger at different times in the universe's history. And that sounds simple, but it's actually a really difficult question because there are a lot of uh, systematic biases in our observations, right? The the mergers that are close by are easier to see than the ones that are further away. Sure. Right? We can see uh, things like tidal debris or, you know, these gorgeous tidal arms that we see in nearby galaxies that show how these galaxies are interacting or they've had a merger. When you look at things that are far away, you're looking you know, they tend to be very small on the sky. They tend to be very faint. And so it's just much harder to say with any certainty. So that's one difficulty. Um, you can do things like count things up in pairs. So you can find like how often do we see two galaxies next to each other on the sky that might eventually merge together. And then you can you can conduct some statistical analysis to say, okay, well, what are the chances that those will merge in some time? Um, and estimate a merger rate that way. So that's probably one of the more common ways that it's done. I see. So now you've been doing this sort of thing for for a long time, right, Jayon? And what is your your research kind of found on in this regard? Uh, do these does the merger rate of galaxies seem to be consistent enough to imply that that you could build these huge galaxies we see today by the sort of uh, the processes we describe of, of combining smaller and smaller units of mass to create this huge, massive, crazy, chaotic beehive of a galaxy. Yes. So this does, this does actually seem to work. So you, there are enough, there's so many disk galaxies in the early universe that we do see enough mergers of them to form elliptical galaxies. And then after that, you can get subsequent mergers of elliptical galaxies to make even bigger and bigger things. And so some of the really, really massive galaxies that we see in clusters have probably accumulated lots of other galaxies over their lifetimes, right? They've just Mm -hmm. sort of eaten them and gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, the best way to do something like this would be to look at thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of, I'm setting it up for you, Jayana. I'm throwing you, you, uh, uh, geez, I don't remember any words today. No words. What is it? I, I'm just going to, this, this show is just evolving Jayhan into me asking you definitions. For phrases. Like, <laughs> what is that? What is that phrase when you throw a softball? That's what it is. Um, a softball question. Uh, but it's not a softball. I'm just kind of, you know, laying it out there for you. One of the best ways to, to try to analyze this is to try to look at as many galaxies in the early universe as possible or not galaxies, rather we'll call it, I don't know what you want to, is there a term? Here I go again, asking Jay for definitions. Is there a term to describe these like 
these tiny blobs in the early universe? Do we call them galaxies? We still call them galaxies. I okay. mean, at, at least as far as where we can still see them. You know, the really early things you might want to call proto galaxies or something, but there's no clear cut definition. So right. galaxies is fine. Yeah. So in order to make these measurements, in order to say like, you know, there's some statistics that indicate that these galaxies can can merge and over time create some of the big galaxies we see in the universe today over the course of the 13 billion years. Um, that's great and and uh, easy to say now, but I imagine it took hundreds of thousands of observations to get to that point because you cannot just look at two galaxies next to one another and say, oh, yes, those are going to merge. And then there's a third one over a neighbor over there. It looks like that one's going to merge. And then all of a sudden we have a big galaxy. Right, you need tons and tons of data. Right. So, can can you walk us through that process? How do you, how do you observe so many galaxies in the early universe to make the conclusions that you've made? Right. So you have to observe a chunk of the sky. Right. You can't just take one picture. Even if your picture has a hundred galaxies in it, great. That's not right. a, that's not a lot. So you need to to map out a chunk of the sky. Um, but in addition to that, you need more information than just a single picture. So if we, we want to know what the distances to these galaxies are, because without that distance, we can't, we can't say anything about their, their age, right? Or the mm -hmm. time in the universe's history we're looking at. Um, so we need to know something about its distance. We need to be able to measure that. We ideally want to have many, many pictures of the same galaxies taken at different wavelengths of the spectrum because Different wavelengths of light emitted by galaxies tell us different information about the physical processes happening in that galaxy. And so we need to have a lot of data covering the entire spectrum, but also covering large regions of the sky. Right. <laughs> so it becomes a, a, a multiple problem. Um, and that's not something that it's possible for one person to do. It would be nice if I could go to Hubble and say, please give me Lots and lots and lots of time just for myself to do this cool science, but it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Right. Have you tried? Maybe they'll be like, oh, yeah, sure. Here you go. I have not tried as a single Same. proposer Look to that. ask for a lot. Look at um, that. Um, yeah, you but... never know. <laughs> no, because they would never say yes. And the reason they would never say yes is that it's not feasible for one person to do that much work. Mm -hmm. because processing all of these observations, analyzing all of these observations is really beyond more than what one person can do and, and, and working with a collaboration of people. Yeah. And so you're, you're involved in one of those right now. Um, it, two of those or multiple of those, seven of those. Well, you're probably involved. In a few. It's hard to count. It's hard to tell where one ends and another begins sometimes. Right. So, so um, I, I do, before we sort of get into the concept of, of doing galaxy surveys, I do want to ask you more about how different wavelengths of light, different uh, sort of parts of the spectrum, teach us different things. Um, so, can you expand on that a little bit? Why do we look at these early universe with different uh, different instruments, different telescopes, and try to learn about them in different uh, regimes of the electromagnetic spectrum? Okay, so there are a few different reasons. So. One is, let's just talk about the process of star formation, for example. Stars emit light across the spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, really massive, young stars emit more in the UV part of the spectrum. Stars like our sun emit more in the regular visible part of the spectrum. Really low mass stars emit more in the, in the red or infrared part of the spectrum. So where you're looking at in the spectrum is going to be sensitive to different types of stars, for example. Right. And so if you want to know something about the process of star formation or about the age of stars or about the mass of stars in a given galaxy, then you want to measure it at different parts of the spectrum to be able to tell you that information. More distant galaxies also emit at different parts of the spectrum because our universe is expanding. And so galaxies that are really distant are moving are moving away from us quickly. So their light is shifted toward the red part of the spectrum. So things that, you know, nearby galaxies might emit in the visible part of the spectrum. For really distant galaxies, we would observe that same light in the infrared part of the spectrum. Right. So th that's actually an incredibly important point. This this brings up another aspect of your your work that I see, one of the topics that, that you talk a lot about is the, 
the concept of a lurg, right? That yes. Do, do you ever do you ever say do you say the acronym or do you actually say the word? Luminous infrared galaxies. Both, but lurg for short because it's quick. So you do say lurg sometimes. Yes. You like look at these lurgs because yep. lurg is a good. That's a good acronym, but it's a good it's a good word. So lurgs <laughs> and you lurgs. Um, explain how what these things are and how they play a role in in everything we've been talking about for the past few minutes. Right. So the, there's two key words there. So one is luminous, meaning they're really, really bright. And the other is infrared, meaning that they're really, really bright in the infrared part of the spectrum. And the reason that these objects are really bright in the infrared is because they're very dusty. And so I mentioned the process of star formation and how stars can emit a lot of light in the UV and optical part of the spectrum, which is true. But if galaxies also have dust, that dust can absorb some of the light from star formation and it re-emits it in the infrared part of the spectrum. So anywhere we see a lot of dust, we tend to see more emission in the infrared. So these really extreme galaxies that are incredibly bright at infrared wavelengths uh, tend to have pretty incredible rates of star formation to make them so incredibly luminous. Um, so that means they're forming stars much more rapidly than our own Milky Way, for example, or galaxies that are that are what we're used to in the nearby universe. So something is going on with them to make them form stars at an incredibly rapid rate. Now, to get back to this thing we we jumped over, because um, the, this is the problem with doing unscripted interviews is that when you say a buzzword that interests me, I have to talk about it. You know, <laughs> I can't be like, let me, you know, let me jot that one down. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but to get back to it. In, in order to find these lurgs, these, these U lurgs, um, in order to find early galaxies undergoing merger, in order to find any of this stuff, we need galaxy surveys. And so how does this, what does a galaxy survey do? What does it aim to do? Uh, talk about the entire, uh, sort of infrastructure there. Yeah. So, so these surveys, the, the primary goal is to observe a lot of galaxies at a lot of different wavelengths. And so, Essentially, this is done by a group of people getting together and agreeing to observe the same part of the sky. Like, okay, mm -hmm. I'm going to observe this part of the sky in the infrared. You can go observe it in the x-ray. This other person will go observe it in the UV. And then we come back and put all of our data together. And so we can use that same data set to then study lots of different properties of galaxies. And so I can take that data and go and look at mergers and somebody else can take that gap, that data and go and look at clusters. Um, so we all have, may have different science goals that can be um, accomplished using the same data set. And so that's the basic idea of these surveys is, is it's essentially data collection on a large scale so that we can accomplish bigger things than we could on our own. Right. And it's also very important to look at such a huge population of these objects, right? In right. order to draw conclusions um, about the broader, about them in a, in a broader context, which is what That's you right. There's yeah. so much, there's so much diversity in galaxies and there's so much happening at the same time to, to galaxies that just looking at a couple won't tell you the whole picture. So you really need to look at lots of them to be able to tease apart all of the different effect, all of the effects that are happening at the same time. So how many galaxies have been observed with uh, the big the big uh, collaborations you're part of are Cosmos and Candles? Is that correct? Right, that's right. And how many galaxies do each of them look at? So Cosmos has observations for something like two million galaxies. Jeez. <laughs> at various, you know, depths and distances and such. And candles is, I, I don't know off the top of my head, I'd want to say something like 250,000. I see. Galaxies. Now that, like, how, do it, that is so absurd to me. I, like, some days, uh, I wouldn't be able to work. I would just be <laughs> like two million. And even in that two, like, how do you even analyze all that data? How do you look at all of the galaxies? Yeah, a lot of, survey science like this has really become data science in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. So a lot of the techniques that people use for data science for studying large data sets are applicable. Um, in practice, it depends what you're asking, right? For a lot of what I do, I'm not looking at the whole 2 million. Right. Because many of those 2 million are things that are really small, really faint, and they're not, they're not what I'm looking at, right? Mm -hmm. I might be looking at the most massive ones. 
or the ones specifically in a cluster or the ones specifically with an active black hole. Like there's a lot of different subcategories that people are interested in. So it just means filtering down that full data set to the population that you care about. Like I picture that there are galaxies in the like that the whole collaboration knows about that are like you know i I don't know m7204 some crazy name whatever name we give to to astronomical objects which is generally long and has some dates in it whatever is there are there objects that are such oddballs that cannot be explained and that seem to you know not really have any other any other galaxies exhibiting the same behavior are there oddballs that like everyone knows about I would say the really odd ones are the ones that you detect in one wavelength, but not others. So that limits the amount of information you have about them, but it also puts constraints on some of the physical properties. So for example, really, really distant galaxies tend to be detected by something called a dropout technique. Mm-hmm. So that means they're they're bright in one part of the spectrum and faint in another. And so if you observe them at the right place, you'll see them in one observation, but not in an adjacent wavelength. That's what it means by dropout. Mm-hmm. It's there and then it's gone. And so that's that's one technique. Um, it's It can be difficult because you might only have like that one really faint detection and you don't know if it's real or not. Uh, but that's that's a technique that's used for those. Um, there's a new population of galaxies that are pe- people are interested in called, uh, what do people call them? HST dark galaxies, so HST for Hubble. So these are galaxies that are so dusty, they're, they're detected at really long, far infrared and submillimeter wavelengths, uh, but they're not detected at all in the optical, in the visible part of the spectrum. So we don't know what they what they look like, but we know that they have a lot of gas and dust in them. Oh, that, see, that's fascinating. That makes me want to study them. Yep. <laughs> uh, these, these are the open questions that, that get people uh, sort of involved in physics. Um, now, Hubble only allows you to see so far back in time, if you will, right? Um, do you, will James Webb's, the James Webb Space Telescope, when it launches in uh, 2056, will that help you? <laughs> will that help you in this avenue? Yeah, so that's, that's one of the big goals for James Webb is to be able to detect even more distant galaxies and to be able to detect, detect enough of them that we can do some statistics um, and study their shapes. You know, right now, these really distant things are just little blobs, you know, a few, a few pixels here and there. So you can't say very much about them besides they're there. Um, right. But, you know, what we hope is to be able to say something more about their shape and their level of star formation and how massive they are and those kinds of properties. I have some stuff I want to talk about, but I want to make sure we covered everything in this vein before I move on. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we can sort of, because black holes are big in the news today, right? Yeah. I mean, black holes are, and that's something I, we actually are going to cycle back because I, I do want to talk to you about the Nobel news. Um, but black holes are incredible. I mean, they're the zeitgeist of everything in astronomy and physics right now. They're like the thing that gets everyone. It's the sexiest word in all, maybe in all of science. So we can measure certain properties of black holes by analyzing the galaxies that that they harbor in. But we can also sometimes see that black holes exist in the form of AGN. Is that right? That's right. Uh, active galactic nuclei. And and how do we look at a galaxy and and identify that there's some black hole doing some magnificent physics at the center of it? So so active galactic nuclei are galaxies that have a high level of activity uh, in their center. And so they were first found uh, because they, they essentially look like stars, right? You had this really bright object in the sky um, that outshone the rest of its galaxy, but was really far away. And it, it took a lot of work to figure out that this object wasn't actually a star, but it was a distant galaxy where its center was producing so much light that you couldn't see the galaxy around it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what an active galactic nuclei is. And of course, there's a there's a broad range of categories and different levels of activity. Those were the extreme ones. And so you, you want to find these things that have incredibly bright centers, uh, brighter than you would expect for a normal galaxy. Uh, and another common way to find them are things that emit a lot of light in the X-ray part of the spectrum. Because there aren't a lot of processes that can emit huge amounts of X-ray radiation, right? We, we understand 
some of the basic ones and that that create x-rays. Um, but when you get to really extreme luminosities from distant galaxies, the only way you could form, you can produce that much x-ray is from an active black hole in the center. Right. And, and almost everything we've talked about today, I think, um, and you, obviously you're much more of an expert in this field than I am. Uh, but it, I think all, a lot of the problems we talked about today, the motivation to answer them, uh, comes from the fact that like, it's very confusing how black holes got so massive, right? It's very confusing how the black holes at the center of elliptical galaxies got to be so, so heavy. Is that, is that a correct characterization? Right. Or how they got to be so massive so quickly, right? right? Early in the universe. Now, when we look back in, in the galaxy surveys like Cosmos and Candles, do we see a lot of AGN activity? Do we see a lot of these galaxies or rather black holes sort of feeding on matter in the, in the earlier universe? We do. So we're, so we're not probing the very extremes of the early universe, right? right. Those periods that I mentioned right after the Big mm -hmm. Bang. Um, but sort of the more intermediate time periods where things were growing, uh, pretty rapidly and where black holes were actually gaining a lot of their mass overall. Uh, and so that's the, that's the time period that we're sensitive to. And we see a lot of, a lot of cases of very active black hole growth. I see. Now I want to, uh, we don't have a ton of time left and I, I want to switch gears. Because I really want to talk to you about the the black hole news today. Um, so three people got announced for the nomination of the Nobel Prize in physics this year. This came out today. Roger Penrose, obviously a, a pioneer of some um, more theoretical black hole work. And then Reinhard Genzel. That's a that's a tough one. Uh, sorry if I got the name wrong. And Andrea Giz. I think I did the last name or the last name right on uh, in her case. Now, what is super interesting and and the reason I want to bring it up, Jahan, is because I know that you are um, involved in so many efforts, sort of women in physics type efforts. This is the first Nobel ever awarded to a woman in the field of astrophysics. Uh, there's never been a Nobel given to a woman for an astrophysical discovery. And we know over the history of, of this field that women have played a huge role in so many discoveries, um, from the snubs of Jocelyn Bell, um, all the way until even before that, all the way up until now, women have played an, an incredible role in this. And I just am curious if, if this means anything special to you to see that, that your community, um, which has very good representation, I think, in terms of astronomy, has very good representation in terms of, of women involvement finally getting some recognition. Yeah, I think it's huge because a lot of people look to people that win these kinds of prizes as role models, as mm -hmm. you know, someone I want to be like someday, right? You mentioned earlier, like, oh, maybe I'll get a Nobel Prize for this work. Right. right? Those are the, the things that people say to themselves. And so when you look at history and you look at people's pictures because these are you often see you know photos of nobel prize winners on web pages or i you know um, on walls of places and when all you see are men older mm -hmm. men it really makes it hard to feel like you belong in that field right so having even one <laughs> it'd be great to have more someday but having even one woman win a prize as as um well known as this and to have as much notoriety as this is a big deal because people will look toward her in the future as a role model. Right. Have you ever thought I want to win a Nobel prize? Like I, it's something I want to do. It's something I aspire to do. I would say only, you know, at like the high school stage or something like that, right? At a really young stage where it just seems like that's the ultimate Right. That's the ultimate goal. And you want to be, you want to be famous, right? It's, it's like being a kid and wanting to be a basketball player mm -hmm. or wanting to be a famous actor, right? It's sort of that level of notoriety. Um, I think when I actually started working as a scientist and started working in the field and things, things like that didn't hold any interest to me any longer because it is such a, such a rarity right. Right, for something like that to happen that it's not really realistic. And that's not something you can plan for. It's right? so much of science is. Yeah luck what you happen to discover what happens to be interesting at a given period of time that it just you can't plan for it yeah you are actually the first person to admit to me 
that you at one point wanted to, like it was an aspiration of yours, even though it was in high school, because I'm the same way. Uh, when I was in high school and like, you know, like I was talking to you about the M Sigma stuff, um, thinking I, I found some Nobel prize worthy stuff. Uh, I was always a spy, like I'm going to win the Nobel prize. I'm going to like treating it like it was the NBA, you know, championship right. or something. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. You put it in the same category as wanting to be an astronaut or wanting to be president. Yeah. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Do you think like, how do you, I, I argue that that's a good, that's a good thing. Like I, from a personal standpoint, the draw, it's good. Like the amount of drive that that brings out in you is a good thing. Um, I don't think there's anything bad about now. I, I don't think, I do think that maybe it would like sort of inspire some unnecessary competition in science, which exists anyway. Uh, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to aspire to that. Now, with that being said, I don't think the Nobel prize is a thing to aspire for, but like, do you think there needs to be better ways to recognize people's work in this field on a broader scale? Because like today, and then whenever they inaugurate them in, in December, whenever they do it, that's like really the only days where barring a huge achievement that science is sort of on the main stage and people actually recognize it as something impactful. Right. I mean, I think something like the Nobel Prize is more important to people that aren't scientists than it is to scientists themselves. Right. Yeah. Like we, but, yeah, I agree. Yeah. We don't, you know, as a community, other than, hey, this is cool and it's great recognition, I don't think we really care that much about things like the Nobel Prize and what they mean. But like you said, it is, it puts science in the spotlight for a day. And it is the big discoveries that people will remember later, people being the being the general public and what their perception of science is. I think right? we need an award show. That's <laughs> right, like the Oscars yeah. for, for science. But I think we need to reward things that aren't just amazing discoveries because there's right. so much more to science, right? Things... The Nobel Prize is limited to being three people, but so much work is collaborative. Correct. You don't see very many prizes going to the collaboration of a thousand people that made this possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't see awards going to people that mentor or people that teach or people that, you know, create the next generation of scientists. Like there's a whole lot of other things that we could recognize scientists for. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree a thousand percent. Um, Brian Keating, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Brian Keating. I've had him on the show a few times and, and he is in favor of just dismantling the Nobel prize altogether. Um, for, for many of the reasons that you, you talked about is that it, it doesn't do many good things, uh, for science. And it, in some cases, like it actually detracts from the way that science actually works. It gives people a false sense of, of belief in how science actually works. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's super cool to see. Though, uh, I think it's super cool to see Andrea win the, win the prize today. Uh, it's just cool. I don't know how to describe it other than that. It's very cool. I, I agree. It is very cool. Yeah. And this is always weird to me because I don't want this to, like, when I say it's really cool, part of my brain thinks like, are people thinking I'm just saying that because like she's a woman and I'm just saying it's, it's cool that a woman be, does it feel a little bit, like that phrase kind of detracts from the fact that she actually did really awesome work and good work. Cause that, that's not the way I intend to say it. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but I feel like that's why I, I want to talk to you about it because this is a weird thing we do where we say, Oh, it's really cool. This woman won the Nobel prize. But also in saying that you're kind of do, doing this weird little thing where you're implying that women haven't historically won Nobel prizes and it's cool that we're finally, I, I don't know. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I, I think when, when you say something like, oh, it's cool a woman won this prize that people's inclination might might think like, oh, this is, you know, she won it because she was a woman or it was a good, she did a good job for a woman. Correct. Right? And sort of yes, as a yeah. negative. But I, I kind of interpret it in the opposite way, right? It's so rare for women to get this prize and women, in a lot of ways, have to work so much harder to get to that stage that when a woman does get the prize, it's like she earned it 10 times more than any man did. Sure. Do you think that that is changing? Like, do you think that that the Nobel Prize Committee sat down and was like, all right, guys, the quota's up. Um, we got to give we got to give a woman the prize. Or do you think this is a sense that that the times are actually changing? and we're We're beginning to 
to recognize the, the fruits of, of, of her labor, uh, more? I would say the latter. I think, I think people are more cognizant of it. Mm-hmm. I don't think the committee wants to have the air of having a quota or awarding right. a prize just because. Yeah. Um, but I think I they are more aware now in terms of thinking about who to nominate and thinking more broadly than they might have in the past. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to believe in, uh, I don't know, people might disagree with me. I tend to believe that like a lot of these groups of people, government, government in the United States is a great example. Um, but also like the people doing the nominations and voting in the Nobel prize committee, they tend to be old. They tend to be like really old, like way too old, like 80 years old. And so a lot of societal changes lag behind the actual awarding of, of prizes or legislation in the case of government. Um, so you, you'll see a lag of like, you know, 20, 30, 40 years in some cases behind mm-hmm. the societal shift before you actually see the legislative, uh, or the impactful change in, in voting. I, I don't know. That's what I tend to believe happens in these scenarios. And I think that this is a sign that that societal change and those societal implications have caught up with the committee. And, and so we'll start to see some more, uh, some more love being spread across the community. Yeah, I think that's right. Yep. But anyway, Jayon, it was uh, great to have you on here. I appreciate you coming on um, and talking about all things, lurgs, black holes, <laughs> galaxies, galaxy mergers. Um, I appreciate it. Is there anything else you, you want to say or anything else you want to cover? I'd say thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun to talk about these topics. Yes. Uh, and, and we'll, we'll be have, I think you'll be episode 80, big 80. 80. Um, wow. Yeah, That's a lot, a lot of work. <laughs> Dang. Maybe you're going to be episode 79 though. Which sure. is a better number. Yeah. Eight, I'll make you 80. I'll just skip 79. <laughs> yeah, if there, if there is no 79, I'm just going to skip it. Thank you.